Hello, everybody. Welcome. Eddie Chavez Calderon here with Prairie Litsetic. I appreciate each and every one of you who is joining this call, whether you're on the recording, you're on the live, or you're joining us here on our, our Zoom class today. Um, we have the honor of having Rabbi uh, Dr. Jeremiah Unterman, uh, who has been a resident scholar at the Hertz uh, Herzl Institute and is an academic editor of the Koran Tanakh of the Land of Israel since 2017. Um, from his own words, I'm going to keep it very short and uh, refer to him as Jerry, which we were so happy to have today and have some great Torah being taught to us today. So uh, with uh, that being said, thank you so much, Jerry. Go ahead and take it over. <laughs> thank you, Eddie. Uh... Uh, the uh, topic today is the primacy of morality over ritual uh, in the prophets. And uh, really, uh, it's uh, based upon uh, my book, uh, which is uh, Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Evolutionized Ethics. Um, the book is available at the Jewish Publication Service, but the, uh, the actual uh, talk tonight is taken directly from the fourth chapter of the book, or a summary, I should say, of that chapter. And I'll uh, switch over to a sharing screen in terms of the, uh, so we can get a uh, look at the PowerPoint. Uh, the, uh, uh, as you can see, it's uh, the fourth chapter of the book, uh, The Primacy of Morality of a Ritual. The, the book really attempts to take six significant ethical areas which the Bible deals with and shows how this is a revolution in ethics from everything that's going on in ancient Near Eastern polytheism. Now, in terms of, uh, let me introduce the topic uh, by talking about cult. Uh, the, the cult, which, and I'm not referring, of course, to what's called a cult today uh, in the negative sense, but rather the cult is a system of rituals of any religion. And the cult was a major concern to the maintenance of religion and therefore to the preservation of society throughout the ancient Near East. Nowhere in the ancient Near East could society be conceived of in non-religious terms, such as secular or atheistic, that are commonplace today. Each ancient Near Eastern society had at its base a concept of the divine and of the attendant human obligation to worship and sacrifice to the divine. Given our ethical focus, we need to ask, does a connection exist between ethics and cult in ancient Near Eastern writings, including the Jewish Bible, Hanach. If so, what is the nature of this linkage? So ethical ideals existed, did exist in ancient and recent law collections, wisdom literature, and other writings. Uh, there are people who think that everything about polytheism is bad, and uh, they had no idea really of ethics, but they did have an idea of ethics. Uh, specifically in Mesopotamia, the king was understood to be legally obligated by the gods to ensure that the weak were not oppressed by the strong. And in Egypt, superiors were socially encouraged to feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, and clothe the naked, meaning to their inferiors. Uh, in Mesopotamia, 
uh, right, we're talking about the area between the two rivers of uh, the Tigris and Euphrates and uh, surrounding those rivers. Uh, civil and criminal law comprised a different category from cultic requirements and under different administration. In Egypt, legal adjudications, such as lawsuits based upon accusations of harm, took place outside of the jurisdiction of the priesthood. In contrast, the Torah's law codes encompassed and even interwove both ethics and ritual, while introducing detailed ethical laws in a variety of social areas. In the ancient Near East, sacrifice was the most pervasive ritual of the cult. Uh, scholars of primitive, ancient, and comparative religions have identified six possible motivations for sacrifices. To provide food for the deities, or to inculcate the life force of the sacrificed animal, or to bring about union with the god, uh, as a gift to persuade the deity to respond with aid, as a substitute for human victims of aggression, or to assuage feelings of guilt caused by the killing of the animal by devoting the victim to the god. Now, uh, there's other research that have pointed to additional incentives for sacrifices, from magic uh, to showing respect to giving thanks, uh, while thanksgiving would certainly apply to Israel, in the list I just mentioned, only the notions of a gift or assuaging feelings of guilt would relate to the conception of sacrifice in the Jewish Bible. In particular, the idea of God aiding someone uh, and who gave God a gift, shall we say, of a sacrifice, would include everything from receiving God's blessing to the forgiveness of sin and removal of impurity. A crucial difference between ancient Near Eastern cultures and Israel is that in the temple in the ancient Near East, that is the house of the deity, it was primarily for the benefit of the God as he or she was provided with food, drink, and a dwelling place. That was the purpose of having a temple. In the Jewish Bible, however, God's supernatural character means that he has no natural needs. And by the way, I say he, but obviously God is not a he, and God is not a she. But uh, in Hebrew, uh, the word who, right, which we translate as he, uh, is used uh, both uh, for that which is uh, masculine and that which is neither masculine or feminine. Uh, you can't tell things by Hebrew grammar, uh, whether it's uh, really a masculine or a feminine that you're talking about. For example, if you want to say forefathers in Hebrew, you say avot, which is a feminine ending. And if you want to say women in Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, you say nashim, which is a masculine ending. So uh, let's not get caught up on, on that. And so God has no natural needs. He's Supernatural. In Israel, then, the temple is for the benefit of the people. Accordingly, the entire significance to God of a sacrificial gift was symbolic. Now, first, I want to show you some ethics and cultic context in the ancient Near East, because in order to understand what the prophets did here, you have to understand what the situation was like in the world around them. So, take, take four examples. Uh, the first is 
uh, a hymn to Enlil Sumerian. Sum Sumer uh, was uh, the outstanding civilization of the third millennium BCE. Uh, and they had uh, into the beginning of the second millennium and uh, Sumer was a very advanced uh, civilization. Uh, it, uh, there's a wonderful book called History Begins at Sumer, written by a Jew, Samuel Noah Kramer, uh, way back, I think, in the 60s, uh, in which he, uh, I think, describes 31 firsts uh, created by that civilization I mean, in astronomy and all, in writing, all kinds of things, and mathematics. Okay. So in this hymn to Enlil, which is Sumerian, it's from around 2000 BCE, the god Enlil establishes his seat in the temple of Nippur. Nippur was a, a major city uh, in southern Mesopotamia. Um, uh, it was a, it was a, the temple was uh, a, a holy temple um, uh, for a lot of peoples in the area. Um, okay, so here you have in this hymn, you... We have mention of both moral and ritual characteristics of the city. Here, quote, enmity, oppression, envy, brute force, libelous speech, arrogance, violation of agreement, all these evils the city does not tolerate. Nippur, whose hand the wicked and evil cannot escape, the city endowed with truth where righteousness and justice are perpetuated. Right? This is, you're talking about a text from 4,000 years ago. Of the rituals so precious, every day a festival, at the break of dawn, a grand harvest, a, a feast. The house of Enlil, uh, the god, is a mountain of overflow, where beggar, scavenger, and idler are taboo. So on the one hand, you see it calls for justice. On the other hand, let's not have any beggars or scavengers around here. <laughs> uh, uh, so you have, a, here's a, a text which deals with both ritual and ethics. Next text is uh, Akkadian. That means that's Babylonian. Shurpur litany. This is from towards the end of the second millennium BC. And the litany lists the ritual and ethical sins of uh, any particular individual. There's actually some 100 different um, uh, lines to this litany. I'll just take a few of them. Uh, the one who is sick in danger of death who has eaten what is taboo to his god, there's a ritual aspect, who has eaten what is taboo to his goddess, who said no for yes, who said yes for no, who despised his goddess, spoke evil things, oppressed the weak woman, estranged friend from friend, did not release a captive, etc. So here you have ethical crimes together with ritual offenses. Go to the next uh, two sources. Uh, so the, these first two sources I read are evidence of religious texts in which the God desires both morality and proper ritual. Now, in the instructions of Maricare, which is um, a piece of wisdom literature from Egypt, approximately 21st century BCE, spoken by a king to his son. In that, uh, in that text is found a call to please the sun god, who was the chief god of Egypt, by being upright, by doing justice, and you have this fascinating line, the loaf of the upright is preferred to the ox of the evildoer. So the ethical lesson here has no resemblance to any other extra biblical text in the ancient Near East, meaning any other text outside the Bible. 
Nonetheless, it does not totally negate the sacrifice of the wicked. Rather, by the very fact that it is comparison, it only indicates that the large, expensive offerings of the evildoer is of lesser value to the God than the small and expensive offering of the righteous. Although the offering of the righteous is preferred, the gift of the wicked is not rejected. And the last text I'll bring here, uh, by the way, it was kind of hard to find these combinations in ancient Egyptian texts. Um, you have one prophetic text uh, from the prophet Nursin to the king of Mari, in, uh, whose name was Zimri Lim. And Mari is the upper, the upper Euphrates area. Eight, this is an 18th century BCE text. text uh, it links ritual in one prophecy to ethics in a second prophecy. The text begins with a complaint from the god Adad about the failure to provide a certain ritual offering and a particular estate presumably to be added to the temple's properties. The temple in the in Mesopotamia was not what we think of when we think of, uh, let's say, the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Mesopotamia was a major economic center which owned many estates and which... Uh, had uh, because it was a major landowner, so these estates produced uh, all kinds of food and they were sold to the public. And so the temple became was a very, very wealthy uh, concern. So, okay, after uh, uh, the, the, this complaint about the uh, failure to provide a certain ritual offering in a particular estate, then, then the God is quoted as saying, Am I not a dad who raised him the king in my lap and restored him to his ancestral throne? Now, since I restored him to his ancestral throne, I may take away the estate from his patrimony as well. Should he not deliver the estate, I can take away what I have given. But if on the contrary, he fulfills my desire, says the God, I shall give the land from the rising of the sun to its setting, meaning across the horizon. Uh, later on in the text, the same Nur-Sin, this prophet Nur-Sin, whose this prophecy is sent to the king, right, quotes another prophet, a prophet of Adan, Lord of Aleppo, uh, the god of Aleppo, spoke as follows, am I not Adan, Lord of Aleppo, who raised you in my lap and restored you to your ancestral throne? I do not demand anything from you, when a wronged man or woman cries out to you, be there and judge their case. This only have I demanded from you. If you heed my word, I will give you the land for the rising of the sun to its setting. It's noteworthy that the God's ethical demand to provide justice is similar to that made of the king in Mesopotamia in legal and royal context. So you have both in this prophecy, or this a double prophecy, you have both the idea of a king providing ritual needs to the God, as well as providing justice to the people. So conclusions about these ancient Near Eastern texts. So to answer the questions posed at the beginning of this section, in cultic settings in the ancient Near East, evidence exists that the gods desired both morality and ritual. A late third millennium BCE Egyptian wisdom text Instructions of Marikari does proclaim that the God favors an offering based not upon its objective value, but upon the ethical behavior of the offerer. Nonetheless, 
The sacrifice of the malefactor is not rejected. Finally, a prophetic text affirms that the king's obedience or disobedience to a god's ritual or ethical desire will result in reward or punishment, respectively. Now let's go and see what goes on in the Torah. The Torah's law codes list ethical and cultic requirements next to each other, but it's not possible to infer from the Torah's legislation whether ethics or ritual has greater value. The only way to tell the relative importance of a specific law in the Torah is if a harsher punishment or a greater reward is attached to it. For example, the death penalty is mandated for both severe ethical, such as murder in the book of Numbers, or ritual violations, such as working on the Sabbath in Exodus. Now, so that's the only way you can tell that this is a more important law, shall we say, than let's say if you take an ethical law, than just being a thief, where yeah, there's no there's no uh, mandated death penalty for being a thief. Okay. Conversely, in Deuteronomy, the assurance of long life is attached specifically to three ethical laws: honoring one's parents in the Ten Commandments, taking young birds from a nest only after chasing away the mother bird, and the third one is honest weights and measures. I'll quote you the law, you shall not have in your pouch alternate weights, larger and smaller. You shall not have in your house alternate measures, larger and smaller. You must have completely honest weights. You must have completely honest measures in order that you will endure on the soil the Lord your God is giving you. If you want long life on the land, then you have to obey uh, these ethical laws. At the same time, Long life, at the same time, life is long life is also promised for obedience to all the commandments, including the ritual acts of tying God's words on one's hand and forehead, the tefillin, and writing them on the doorposts of one house, the mezuzah. Similarly, one may not ingest the blood of an animal in order that it may go well with you and your descendants after you, says Deuteronomy, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. This seemingly ritual injunction is actually derived from an ethical ideal. Blood is a tangible symbol of the life that God has given all birds, land animals, and humans. Accordingly, eschewing the ingestion, ingestion of blood shows reverence for God-given life. And then you have a statement at the end of, uh, towards the end of chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, which says, be careful to heed all these commandments that I enjoin upon you in order that it will go well with you and your descendants after you forever. For you will do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So whether uh, by severity or of punishment or magnitude of reward, one cannot determine from the Torah's laws the relative importance of ethics and ritual. Uh, there are two factors, though, that indicate that a greater significance is found in the Torah for ethical acts as opposed to ritual ones. First of all, there's a multiplicity of reasons and motivational statements exhorting the Israelites to care for the stranger, poor, widow, and orphan. And there is no ritual equivalence to these motivational statements and reasons. Second, 
And upon the entry to the promised land, according to Deuteronomy chapter 27, 12 curses are to proclaim, be proclaimed by the Israelite tribes on Mount Eval and Mount Grizim. And these 12 are divided in the following way. The first curses against idolatry. The second through the fifth are moral crimes. For example, insulting parents, theft by moving a landmark, misdirecting a blind person. The sixth through ninth are sexual crimes with one stepmother, an animal, one sister. And the 10th and 11th are against murder and taking a bribe to kill an innocent, which perhaps refers to accepting a bribe as a judge or a witness. The 12th curse is against anyone who does not uphold the Torah's instructions. But where is the curse specifically against one who violates the Sabbath or the holidays or the holy objects or a kashrut? <laughs> The absence of any ritual crime at this crucial moment may minimize the importance of the ritual as opposed to the moral. In some, the possibility exists that Torah, law, and covenant on some level infers, although it doesn't say explicitly, that morality has a greater value than ritual. I'm going to skip uh, to save time Psalms and Proverbs, and I want to go to now the ethics and ritual. <clears throat> in the prophets. So the first prophet I'm going to mention is Samuel, First Samuel chapter 15, who he rebukes King Saul. And when King Saul disobeys God, and Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience to the Lord's voice? Surely obedience is better than sacrifice, compliance better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance like the iniquity of teraphim, kind of an idol. Because you rejected the Lord's word, he has rejected you as king. Right? Saul thought that by doing many sacrifices, he could get out of disobeying God. The obvious message is that submission to God's precise demand in, is a superior means of showing one's fealty than sacrifices. Just as obviously these verses decree no outright negation of ritual, because the book itself attests to ritual in earlier passages. So Samuel's pronouncement does not condemn sacrifice per se, but only when it is offered by someone who thinks that it will be a trade-off for his own disobedience. Samuel compares such an act to idolatry, for it was inconceivable in polytheism that a god would totally reject a sacrifice, especially since one of the purposes of such sacrifices was to persuade the god to accept the sacrificer, no matter how the latter had behaved. And in fact, the gods needed the sacrifices because that was provided their food and drink to them, their libations. As, as shall be seen, this, this message of Samuel is critical for understanding the passages of later prophets who unambiguously contrast ethics and ritual. So this passage by in Samuel serves as a precursor and precedent to the following passages. Now we'll go to the prophet Amos, Amos, now, who prophesies if Samuel was in the 10th century or the uh, beginning uh, of the 10th century, 
So Amos now is in the uh, around the second quarter of the eighth century BCE. He says the following: I hate. He's speaking in God's name. I hate. I despise your festivals. He says to the Israelites. I gain no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and your meal offerings, I will not accept them. And the gift offerings of your fatlings, I will not look upon favorably. Remove from me the din of your hymns, your psalms, and the melody of your lutes, I won't listen. But let justice roll on like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Right? This was quoted by Martin Luther King famously in Washington. Did you offer me sacrifices and meal offerings those 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? This last verse about offering sacrifices and meal offerings has a parallel in Jeremiah. For when I freed your fathers from the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them. Do my bidding that I may be your God and you may be my people. Walk only in the way that I enjoin upon you, then it may go well with you. Many scholars thought that both prophets were unaware of the Torah's statements that the Israelites offered sacrifices in the desert wanderings. In reality, however, these verses use terminology in Hebrew that only refer to the voluntary offerings of individuals, as opposed to the mandatory communal offerings offered at scheduled times. In other words, I mean, such as Yom Kippur, in other words, voluntary sacrifices were neither desired by God in the desert, according to Jeremiah, nor were they offered by the people at that time. In Amos, therefore, neither Amos nor Jeremiah rejects the cult in total. The prophets that are using the circumstances in the desert to highlight the travesty that in the prophet's day, the same people who are acting unjustly are the ones bringing voluntary offerings. Amos frequently rebukes the people for numerous moral crimes. I'll give you a couple of examples. Because they have sold this uh, for silver the innocent, the needy for a hidden gain. They who trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the ground and thrust the humble off the road, etc. Um, <clears throat> Uh, here's, here's an interesting one in chapter four. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He's referring to the wealthy women of Bashan who oppress the poor, crush the destitute, who say to their husbands, bring and let us drink. And darling, could you make me a double? <laughs> uh, so here it was saying, but, but where is that wealth coming from? From oppressing the poor and crushing the destitute. Uh, they hear they, another one. They hate the arbiter in the gate. The gate of the city is where judge uh, cases were heard. That's where justice was done, was you would have uh, sometimes the leaders of the people sitting at the gate hearing uh, a, a case, and sometimes it was an appointed judge who would hear the case. They hate the arbiter in the gate, and the one who pleads honestly they loathe. Therefore, because you levy a straw tax on the poor and exact the grain tax from him, you persecutors of the innocent, takers of bribes who subvert the cause of leading in the gate, seek good and not evil that you may live, hate evil and love good, and set up justice in the gate. 
Elsewhere in the same chapter, Amos says, seek God and not evil. So there's an equation here of to seek God means to seek good. Uh, okay. So these passages, uh, which uh, not all of them I read, focus on the abuse of the needy and the poor, corrupting justice in the courts, sexual crimes, and perverting sanctuaries and holy days. The perversion of the sanctuary is emphasized in chapter four. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal, transgress even more. Bring your sacrifice, sacrifices on the morn, your tithes on the third day. Uh, burn a thank offering of leavened bread. Proclaim freewill offerings aloud. For you love that, O Israelites, declares my Lord God. Amos is here mocking the people who think that they are gaining God's approval by coming to the venerable sanctuaries of Bethel and Gilgal and multiplying sacrifices and tithes. Tithes are only brought at most once a year, but here they're brought every three days. Furthermore, they are proclaiming their free will offerings. They're shouting out their voluntary offerings, boasting rather than humility. So their sacrifices are no more than attempts to bribe God. Yeah, they, this is, yeah. who can you bribe with sacrifices is a pagan God. They're treating God as if he was a pagan polytheistic God. Here, God sees these offerings as purposeful rebellious sins. In some, as, as uh, Professor Shalom Spiegel uh, of uh, a long time ago, and I think in the, uh, around 1960, a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary, Theological Seminary uh, wrote a marvelous article and gave uh, actually a speech uh, called Amos versus Amatia. Amatia was the high priest of Bethel. And uh, as he put it in this, and this, this speech was given when the seminary honored uh, a chief justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, who came to visit. And Spiegel put it, sacrifice and prayer cannot serve as substitutes for justice. Under such immoral conditions, it's futile to worship at the sanctuaries. For God will destroy the ancient shrines, even the royal temple at Bethel, along with the palaces of those who have oppressed the poor and needy. At the end, the people shall suffer destruction and exile the ultimate Torah punishments for disobedience to God's treaty, the Sinai covenant and laws. Amos's innovation is to proclaim that the determining factor in Israel's destiny is her transgression of the Torah's moral laws. We see also in Hosea, who uh, prophesies maybe another uh, 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 25 years or so later, uh, in the eighth century, for I, the Lord, desire goodness, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God, God more than burnt offerings. Knowledge of God is an idiom that refers to divinely desired moral behavior. Amos also says, I will betroth you to me. Uh, he's talking to the Israelites as, a, as an, a, a prophecy of redemption. I will betroth you to me with the bride price of righteousness and justice with goodness and mercy, and I will betroth you to me with faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. That's what it means to know God. 
when you act rightly, righteously and with justice and with goodness and mercy. So when chapter six, verse six, for desire goodness, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, does this make a stand against all ritual or only that offered by immoral people? So <clears throat> you have two other passages in Amos, uh, I'm sorry, in Hosea, when he already has altars so as to sin, Ephraim multiplied altars so as to sin. Though I write for him the principal teachings of my Torah, they are considered as those of an alien God. In his Ephraim, this is another name for Israel, his frequent sacrifices it is but flesh for them to eat. The Lord has not accepted them. Now he will remember their iniquity and will punish their sins. And later he says, for their evil deeds, I will drive them out of my house. In the first passage, the people offer many sacrifices only so they can eat more meat. Because you were allowed, uh, these, most of the sacrifices were not whole burnt offerings, but rather a portion was given, uh, was as it were uh, on the altar, and a portion was given to the priests, and the people could take the rest. The people who gave the sacrifice could take the rest. In the first passage, they offer many sacrifices, only they can eat more meat. The second one affirms that it is not God's temple that is worthless, but the people's wicked behavior. So Hosea, like, like Amos, does not see the cult as integrally flawed, integ integrally flawed. Rather, the people's immorality makes their offerings unacceptable. Go to Isaiah in the very first chapter. Uh, <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, he speaks to the people. Give heed to the Torah of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the suet of fatted animals. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or of lambs and goats. When you come to appear in my presence, meaning at the temple, who has asked this of your hand? this trampling of my precincts. Bring no more offerings. Incense disgust me. New moon, Sabbath, holy convocation. I cannot stand iniquity combined with solemn assembly. Now these words testify that Isaiah here is condemning the rituals, not per se, but because they are offered by people acting immorally. He goes, Isaiah goes on, I hate your new moons and festivals. They become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. And then he says, when you stretch out your hands in prayer, prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you will, you keep on praying, I will not be listening. Why won't God listen? Because you have blood all over your hands, says Isaiah. Even prayer is unacceptable in an immoral climate. And what must the people do in order to attain the ritual purity necessary for proper offerings? Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, says the prophet. Remove the evil you are doing from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek after justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the rights of the orphan. Plead the widow's cause. The message Spiritual cleanliness will only be produced by ethical behavior. 
world will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with myriads of streams of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my rebellious transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. Only do justice and act with love of kindness and walk modestly with your God. Now, the sacrificial content here is escalated to an absurd degree, from the normal burnt offerings of year-old calves to the exaggerated thousands of rams, only affordable by a king in a one-time ceremony, one time in his whole kingship, and myriads of streams of oil. From, it goes on until the ultimate, most heinous sacrifice, a child. It emerges then that these are not real questions, but rather rhetorical ones. The response is based solely on ethics. Note that what is good is equated to what the Lord requires of you. And what does the Lord require of you? Acting justice and love of kindness, as in Hosea, and to walk modestly with your God. That is, with humility, the opposite of arrogance. Elsewhere, Micah emphasizes the people's immorality. Indeed, he's the first prophet to predict the actual destruction of the temple and Jerusalem due to the people's moral crimes. Uh, for, but Micah does not denigrate ritual per se, because he includes also in his book the same prophecy found in Isaiah of the future establishment of the house of God in Jerusalem. So just as Isaiah saw a future for the cult, so did Micah. However, the difference is the behavior of the people. I'm going to uh, skip Jeremiah so we can get down to um, uh, the conclusions uh, in a timely fashion. Okay. The Torah, as mentioned earlier, does not palpably differentiate between ethical and ritual laws as to relative importance, even though indications exist that morality is of special significance. The prophets stand at a time when the Torah, in greater or lesser part, is already known to the populace. And what do they see? They look upon a society rife with moral corruption, in which the people's behavior is influenced by the venality of the upper classes. At the same time, they see a cult meticulously observed, but perverted from holiness to hypocrisy. The people treat God as a pagan deity, one who can be appeased with an overabundance of offerings. Within this pervasive environment of immorality, the prophets repudiate the complex of rituals associated with holidays and holy places. Those academics who claim that the prophets are promoting the intrinsic illegitimacy of the cult are imposing modern notions of liberal religion or secular values upon the ancient world. Just as atheism in the ancient world was inconceivable, maybe there was a Meshuganah guy here or there who may have thought that you could have, it could be atheist, atheistic, but 
we never see groups of atheists in the ancient Near East. So, so just as that was inconceivable, so was a religious society without the rituals of worship. Even in modern secular democratic societies, such as the United States, rituals are inherent. Ritual is in fact innate in all human societies. As Moshe Greenberg, great uh, biblical scholar, uh, formerly of the University of Pennsylvania, and then he uh, went to Hebrew University, as he once analogized, it is a ritual in America that on a wife's birthday, the husband will bring her a bouquet of flowers. Should the husband have been good to her throughout the year, concerned with his wife's needs, not taking her for granted, appreciative of her kindnesses and acting kindly to her, not going out with his buddies too often and not staying out too late, not coming home drunk and disorderly, careful and polite in his speech to her, faithful, etc. And then he brings her roses on her birthday. She will gladly accept them as a symbol of love that is manifested on a daily basis. However, should a husband not be particularly caring or attentive, taking her for granted, behaving in a churlish and unthinking fashion, going out too much for too long with poor consequences, speaking harshly to her, being unfaithful, or any combination of the above, and each person can make up his or her own list. And by the way, this works in two directions and not just um, husband to wife or wife to husband. But going back to the husband, and then he brings her a bouquet on her birthday. She has the right to throw the roses in his face. I would add thorns first, saying the symbol of love is meaningless when it is not accompanied by loving behavior. So too is the message of the prophets. All the rituals of the cult, from prayer to sacrifice, are merely symbolic of the people's love of God. However, if the people do not demonstrate their love of God in their daily lives, then God rejects the cult and punishment will ensue. But how can the people behave lovingly to a God who needs nothing? And the prophets respond, show love to the image of God, your fellow human being who is a member of your society. The people obey the ethical laws of the covenant and treat each other with kindness with predominant emphasis on the needs of the underprivileged, then the rituals of prayers and sacrifices are accepted and symbolic of a love that is exhibited daily. On the other hand, if the people do not behave ethically towards each other, then cultic actions are of no value. The revolutionary message of the prophets is that ritual is both secondary to ethics and dependent upon moral behavior for its validity. But again, it's important to remember that in Israel, ritual, rather than the people's being the people's gift to the deity, is apprehended as God's present to the people. It's an act of munificence intended for their benefit and enables the people to be drawn as a were, 
into a more intimate relationship with God. The cult, though, is only a means to an end. To the prophets, the goal of the people, the goal, sorry, is the people's obedience to God's ethical commandments in order to create a just, righteous, and caring society. The prophets made one more unique and pivotal advancement. Previously, the Torah's self-understanding of the Sinai Treaty had resolved, Sinai, right, had resolved that the fate of the nation hinged upon whether or not the people obeyed all of covenantal law, civil, criminal, and cultic. In the books of the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, the primary causes for national doom are the cardinal sins of paganism and illegitimate worship of God. Now, however, the prophets articulate a radical criterion. In the eyes of God, the destiny of the people is determined first and foremost by their ethical behavior. These twin prophetic ethical innovations, the primacy of morality over ritual and ethical behavior as a determining factor of national destiny were unparalleled in the ancient Near East and have remained part of Judaism until this very day. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to go ahead and open it up for questions if anybody has any questions. Yes, Aglaia. Okay, hi, I'm not feeling well today, so this is probably going to be just completely all over the place, and I'm really sorry. However, though, I'm like, and also, I, was, I hope you feel better. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> also, I was late, but the um, things that are coming to my mind right now are, one, God's rejection of Cain's offering. Um, another um, that's coming to my mind, um, Jephthah's um, sacrifice of his daughter because she ran out of his house. She was the first um, thing to run out of his house and everything, though. So, um, um, and also, some part of me is also thinking in terms of if I'm going to bring up Jephthah, then I need to bring up Abraham and the binding of Isaac stories as well and everything. All of these are just like kind of popping around. And so I'm kind of wondering, though, how do we reconcile, one, a rejection of Cain's offering and then Jephthah's offering of his daughter, his, you know, sacrifice of his daughter, Meanwhile, though, like God said that Abraham says, you know, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, but then God says, psych, don't do this and everything, though. I mean, I don't know if this is making a whole lot of sense, though. So. No, no. OK, so let's take them one at a time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's say, OK, um, and uh, the, uh, you know, these are good questions because, I mean, these are questions not so much for, uh, about the prophets, but about God. Right. So, OK, the first thing is. Uh, Cain and Abel. So if you, so here people, unfortunately, I think what's going on is that people are misreading uh, the text. Um, so uh, I tell you, I, I, I have, uh, as I always do, I try to always do, <laughs> I have the Bible in front of me. So if um, we turn to uh, chapter four of Genesis, okay. So uh, it says, um, uh, in in terms of, it says, um, Abel became a keeper of sheep and Cain became a tiller of the soil, right? In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord 
from the fruit of the soil. Okay, so, and that's, and that's pretty much a direct translation of the Hebrew. And Abel, for his part, brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock. Now, what's the difference here? Right? Abel and Cain both bring offerings to God. But Abel realizes he owes God everything, that he is a tenant on God's earth. And so he gives the choicest of what he has, okay, of, and, and of the first fruits of the firstlings. Whereas it's just about Cain. Cain just brings from the produce, he just brings something, you know, just gathers up some stuff. Okay, so he kind of like sees God as an equal partner. Okay, <laughs> all right, you can deserve something. I'll give you something. All right, all right. So, okay, so that is okay. I think the reason for the rejection. Now, if you're talking about uh, Jephthah and his uh, his daughter, God is not speaking there in that entire chapter. That's Jephthah's decision. Right? He's he makes an oath, and and he rather than you know then you know for whatever uh, unfortunately whatever the situation was whether there wasn't a prophet or maybe if someone spoke to him you know you don't really have to do this right this is like whatever right but you understand that God is does not is not present. There in that chapter, and that's just you have to just of decision. Now, the much the much more difficult question is about uh, 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 the uh, command to uh, the sacrifice eyes. Uh, and this uh, actually, there's an article that I'm thinking about writing about this. I actually have been thinking about it for a long time. <laughs> but there's, um, I, I think, what happened. You have to look at. You have to look at things in context. And here, I think you have to look at the story about Abraham and Isaac here and God's command to Abraham in the context of what has just occurred in the previous chapter, where uh, Sarah has demanded that Abraham expel uh, from the family uh, uh, Ishmael and his mother Hagar. And when you, you know, and it's kind of stunning that God says, okay, yes, listen to her. She's right because Isaac will be your heir, okay? And he's going to inherit the blessing and promise I made to you. But what does Abraham do? He sends them off with just one small skin of, of uh, you know, a for, of water, right? And he throws them off into the what did he he didn't have to do that he could have in in a couple of chapters previously he had um sent uh, 318 men to bring back a lot okay he was a rich man he had a he had a lot of camels and donkeys and whatever you want and he could have had a lot of servants he could have sent and he just sends them off like you know is Cavalierly, as it were, and uh, and and I think um, 
And then God says to him, wait, this is, this is how you behave? Fine, then sacrifice to me your son. And it's and Abraham, he here he does as he's always done, exactly what God tells him to do. But here he takes some servants with him, and then he leaves them behind as he takes Isaac with him, and he takes him, and he's at the point of he says, Okay, God. This is what you want, you know, and and then God says, no, stop. He says, now I see that you fear God. And usually the word God for God there is the word Elohim. It's not the it's not the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God. And that means elsewhere, it means elsewhere, it refers to an ethical act. Well, what's the ethical act? It's, I think what is happening here is God is saying, now I realize that your behavior before that you, that because your behavior before, how you treated Hagar and Ishmael so cavalierly, your other son so cavalierly, that you don't deserve Isaac. And now I'll stop you and say, okay, then just make for me a regular sacrifice, everything, because now I realize that you know that you were wrong. So maybe it's the best I can do. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, friends. We have time for one more question. Somebody wants to go ahead and unmute. Okay, uh, looks like we have a question here from Facebook and it's, uh, how do we see ritual and morality tying into our current times and our fight for social justice in our communities? Uh, people and rituals um, are kind of like uh, a part of daily living. I think that uh, in the, we, we have these routines, right? we have so many rituals when we brush our teeth, when we have our coffee, when we had such all these kinds of things, these are all rituals. And we have to realize that there are things going on in our societies which really need fixing. And we have to kind of like get, maybe get out of our comfort zone in some way and say, like, there are things I really have to do that I haven't been doing. I have, you know, it's everybody talks about human rights. I'm sorry, I think it's the wrong language. I think we have to talk about human responsibilities and obligations. What are our responsibilities and obligations to those who need more, who just simply don't have the ability, don't have the wherewithal, don't have, don't aren't able to make it? I'm not saying that you constantly have to just give. Charity. I mean, you can give, you know, just uh, give, do acts of loving kindness, do help. You can help people in lots of different ways. And, right, as somebody once said, right, it's better to give a person, not to give a person a fish, but to teach them how to catch a fish, right? We need training, we need education, we need so much more for people. And uh, it's, uh, um, I, I think that just, that's, maybe that's, what it means. I see somebody saying something. 
Jessica Morris is trying to say something. No? I think she might be talking to somebody else. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. So what what do you say to people who are like, you know what, I, I rap to fill in, I go to show, I dive in all the time, I'm done. I don't need to take care of other people. I don't, why, why do I need to help the homeless? You know, like I'm getting everything. I'm doing all the mitzvot I can. Like what, why, why no, should I care? So, so yeah, I think you should maybe uh, send them a copy of this uh, tape. <laughs> <laughs> No, they. This is it's it's a serious problem that uh, there are people who think that they're very pious by doing all these, but this is not the essential. These are yes, these are things which can help enhance your own intimate relationship to God, but only in a in an ethical context. It's uh, the prophets are are clear one after the other. They are saying the same thing. If you don't, if you're not an ethical person, if you're not showing cares for others, if you're not doing uh, things for other people, God is not interested in any of your rituals. On the other hand, if if you are doing those things and you also do the rituals, it's like, ah, you know, right? Then, you know, there's a clear path between you and God. Who was it who said, um, who was it who said, I can't remember for the life of me who said that, that but um, if you, if I give someone food, they call me a saint, but if I, oh no, I give food to a poor man, they call me a saint, but if I ask why he's poor, they call me a communist. Does anyone remember who said that? <laughs> no, I don't know, but I'm not, I don't agree with, uh, with communism. <laughs> yeah, but, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think we, uh, I think as best as we can, Right, it's it's always good to uh, to give um, you know to, to do what we can for people who are um, uh, in you know in need. Um, at the same time, you're right. We should maybe we should be part of organizations, maybe like this or one or Uri Okay, to be able to to really try and deal more with the with the heart of the issues. Also, not instead, but also. As best as we can. Thank you so much. I love that balance of of, of ritual and and morality and and what we do, uh, friends. That's looks like that's it for our time. Thank you so much to our, our great speaker, who uh, lovingly I say Jerry as he wished, and uh, I appreciate such great Torah that he brought into our class. Make sure you stay up to date with all of Ariel's classes, and you can learn more at our learning library and find out more about Jerry and his um, book and how to be able to purchase it and find it. Thank you so much again for all of you listening and huge thank you to Jerry for this amazing class. Thank, thank you all. And uh, it's an honor. Thank you Take very care. much. Bye-bye.